Kate, welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So, you first, my friend. Me what first. What is astonishing you? I, listen, everyone needs to learn the name Nana Akufu Ado. Everyone needs Nana to Akufu Ado. Everyone needs to know this man's name. Nana Akufu Addo. He is the current president of the Republic of Ghana. He started his second term this past January. And I was watching um, a, a video of his recent state visit to Switzerland. And I was really just kind of casually listening because it was just going like, you know, a typical state visit. There were these formalities and it was nice and lovely. Um, but I was really working on something else. But then the president of Switzerland started talking. I just talk- pause for one second and say, yes. most people, when they're working on something else, have like music <laughs> on. And you're like, I was just casually listening to an international state visit that was not even part of the country that I am from, as you do. And I love that you're saying like, they were just going like state visits go as if a typical person, I'm not saying you're not normal, but you're as calling a me a typical nerd. person knows how a state visit goes with like admiration and respect. I find it like really enduring and squad goals that you are the kind of person who like, is just international politics are just on your, on your radar screen like that for funsies. Like I think some you people just, listen to the radio. <laughs> you just low key called me a nerd, but that's okay. I... <laughs> praised you <laughs> I like know, I but you're very you're very kind very kind anyway. well I was watching this uh, state visit and the president of Switzerland started talking about the nature of the relationship between the two countries and apparently Ghana is Switzerland's largest trading partner in <laughs> sub-saharan Africa didn't know that And let me see if I can find the quote. Uh, The president of Switzerland was saying something like every child in Switzerland grows up with two images, um, like a gold coin and chocolate, right? And then the president of Switzerland said this, quote, we need the raw materials and you have the raw materials, period. It's like, this is the relationship you're going to give us stuff (laughs) and we're going to make stuff and we're going to sell some of this stuff back to you and we're going to consume it, but you're going to give us the raw materials and we're going to make the stuff. That is the relationship. And it just kind of sat there. Well, then uh, the president of Ghana started his speech and it was, you know, just kind of typical uh, kind of running through the history um, the positive history of between the two countries and uh, some of the current uh, things that they share. And then just, I, I had to um, rewind it just to make sure I heard what I heard. But the president of Ghana very calmly said, we no longer want to be dependent on anyone. And 
Ghana is now no longer selling coca to Switzerland because we have factories and we will make chocolate. And there, there are YouTubers uh, throughout the African diaspora <laughs> making these videos going, did you hear what this man just said? And people are really excited because this is, the, the thinking is many leaders on the continent need to do this kind of thing because it is, especially post-colonialism, there are many European countries that still have an economic grip and mm -hmm. a vested interest in keeping African nations poor and dependent upon them. And um, as one of my takeaways is that, you know, I hear so often that the problem with Africa is that it has poor leaders and needs better leaders. Mm -hmm. And I just want to highlight this man as uh, an astonishingly, astonishingly good uh, leader. And I, mean, I think he's someone to watch. It's like it's connecting the... Go, oh, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say in this after um, a former U.S. president called African nations as whole countries. And we need to be watching what's happening on the continent because something is stirring there. Uh, I well, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was just I was just going to end by saying, and there's a, a new um, there's a, a new African Union agreement, just like mm -hmm. the European Union. Union. There's this new um, trade agreement, uh, and so there is this growing pan-Africanism that's not against anybody, but there's this growing um, um, consciousness of, wait a minute, we have resources and the world is coming to us. And so why is it that everyone just gets to come here, grab what they want, go back to their country, use our materials, and then in many cases, sell it back to us, right? Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. I mean, like to connect the dots here, Switzerland, famous for its chocolate and I never thought about it before doesn't grow coca <laughs> doesn't grow coca <laughs> so <laughs> yes or so coca I'm sorry I've been listening to a lot of African YouTubers cacao. they say coca or I think they say coca um, right we say cocoa right but whatever they don't grow the raw materials for this substance this product that they're mm -hmm. famous for and literally in the middle of this ceremonial event the president of ghana says we as a nation are not selling you the raw materials anymore and i mean yeah here for it like yeah i just love that but i do think like it's just interesting i'm going to talk about this later but i'm finally about 15 years after i bought it reading the Henry Cloud book on boundaries. Like sometimes oh, yeah. I hear mm -hmm. someone talk about a book and I'm like, oh, this is great. And I buy the book and then I don't read it just because I heard anyway. So I'm I'm reading it and it's great and also problematic, but great. But I mean, one of the things that he talks about, which I really appreciate is about like just the spiritual premise of reaping what you sow. And I think for a long time, um, colonizing nations have had this expectation that they could sow contempt, disrespect, dishonesty, exploitation, and reap honor, respect, um, positive, you know, positive outcomes from the relationship. And I think what you see the president of Ghana saying is, I don't actually have to 
my nation does not need your nation. And so if you are gonna, you know, not give us some reason to trade with you, then we're not going to trade with you. And I do think it's really hopeful for the entire human family because these sort of exploitive relationships benefit no one. Like they do not benefit obviously the nation that's being exploited. And it's only a short-term superficial benefit for the nation that is exploiting. Right. <laughs> so I think mm-hmm. really the the whole fabric of humanity benefits when these destructive relationships are disrupted and new systems are imagined where partnerships can only happen if there's real mutuality for both people instead of just a power um a power move. So yeah, that's great. But I can't imagine. <laughs> like, what was the response of the president listen, of Switzerland in that moment? Listen, the uh, the camera showed not only president, but the other dignitaries gathered in the room and just watching it. Um, and you can pull it up on YouTube. I mean, I will. Every, everyone looked tight, like, mm. And like, so seriously, like, I mean, Ghana, I'm not familiar with their form of government. Like the president has the power to say from now on, no company in Ghana can sell well, I, Switzerland? I, don't, I don't think I don't think that's what he's doing because they are they are a democratic company. I mean, a, yeah. a country country. Um, but I think there is I don't think this is a top down. Um, well, actually, or, like, I, I think <laughs> that the growers, <laughs> the farmers right. are like, yes, it is about time because well, basically and- other countries pay these um, farmers nothing nothing right yeah well and i mean as we've learned in recent history any government can put a tariff on mm-hmm. any sure. product sure. and so sure. certainly yeah oh, that's fascinating sure. that's right it's like it's like the love actually seen but with actual <laughs> consequences yeah <laughs> that's awesome that's awesome and worth noting i mean obviously there's a lot going on in the world right now and a lot going on in this country but it is like so telling about the state of American media and I'm not someone who decries the state of American media but that like it that doesn't even make the news like that's amazing and it does not make the mainstream American it's news astonishing uh, about a year ago maybe no more than a year ago maybe a year and a half ago he did um rounds through some American universities um I think he was at Harvard and then the University of Chicago um Princeton and giving speeches and mm-hmm. yesterday I listened to I watched his Harvard speech and it was fantastic I mean this guy is amazing well, I really um I'm just worried that he's gonna really convince you to move to Ghana <laughs> <laughs> no I'm um, feeling a little threatened <laughs> so listen the first president of Ghana Kwame Nkrumah um studied here in the U.S. and took um, some of the American form of government to Ghana, um, but also this this idea of of an African consciousness. So when Ghana gained independence from Britain, from the get-go, there was this, like, every African-American, when you step onto the land of Ghana, you have the right to live and work. You don't have to go through all of the mm-hmm. things. Well, they're the ones who did the big come home, like yeah, anniversary. The, the, come, yeah, they did the year of return. Yeah, and yeah. some 
have criticized it because it was um, it was of economic benefit uh, to the country. And so some have said, well, that was just a, um, a marketing for tourism. But I think it's deeper than that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, I like, I mean, it's not a joke, right? Like the idea that people of color would say there's nothing in this country that this country has to offer me that is worth the risk and the harm of white supremacy. Like, I mean, I, why wouldn't people want to? Well, what you don't want to feel is stuck. What right. you don't want to feel is a sense that you have no options. Right. So if you were brought in slavery to the to these shores, um, there, there was a sense of this is your lot. You cannot mm -hmm. go home. As a matter of fact, there at, at the um, at the slave castle uh, in Ghana, where uh, the Dutch, then the British mm -hmm. um, held slaves until transporting them across the Atlantic. Uh, there was a, a sign that said, yeah. you you will not return. This is the the, the point of no return. Point, point of no return. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of African-American, a lot of African-Americans are going, mm, are going back to that place. Kind of to say, look, see, we, we came back. We came back. Yeah. 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 So it's an important thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, I appreciate you. I appreciate this moment because I think a lot of white people don't understand because to a lot of white people, it's something that happened a long time ago mm -hmm. and it has nothing to do with me. So why does it have something to do with you? Like I, like for a lot of pe white people, their emotional reality is, I don't care that slavery happened 400 years ago. So you, you're caring, like looking at a black American and saying, why do you care about it? You shouldn't care about it. If it doesn't matter to me, it shouldn't matter to you. And I think, I mean, A, that's just heartbreaking, particularly when you're talking about people in the body of Christ. Mm. But, but B, people don't understand that like, you don't expect a Holocaust victim but like you know you don't expect the, the grandchildren of holocaust victims to feel no type of way about that yes and you know i think you and for the jewish community every time they gather to celebrate the passover part of the haggadah ritual is you say when we walked through the Red Sea, right? Like it's this mm -hmm, this thing, mm -hmm. like it isn't when our ancestors, it's when we, it was this moment in history of my people is my history too. And I think a lot of white people just don't understand that. And because they don't have any kind of experience that's like that, they then believe that no one should have it again, because mm -hmm. whiteness often sees itself as the default for humanity. So we think, well, what I feel is normal. So if anybody doesn't feel what I feel, then their feelings are not valid. And that's just a really interesting thing. And, and it is also even more heartbreaking for Christians mm. because the whole point of 
communion is that we were at that table. <laughs> that yeah. the night he was betrayed, Jesus sat down at table with us mm-hmm. and broke this bread and gave us this cup. And it's about saying we're not we're not only remembering what happened back then, we are in that moment. And so spiritually, we ought to be able to understand that. That and and so and I just think a lot of white people don't, and because so many white people don't have any authentic relationships with people of color that are safe for people of color to be truthful and vulnerable and because so many white people express in a thousand nonverbal ways that they don't care Mm. so then you don't know like if you don't have relationships and you don't want to know anything you don't want to know then you'll never know it and you'll continue to walk around with this ideology that this isn't real this because this isn't real for me it isn't real for anyone because i'm over it everyone is over it um and so but yeah i mean the, the idea of going back and and saying yeah, there are um jewish people in this country who may never get on a plane and go to israel but they can every year they right. know and they every can. year around the table at passover every year you say next year in Jerusalem, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's this, this idea that, again, like I just think a lot of white people, even a lot of white religious Christian people are so mm, like disembodied from the spirit mm-hmm. <laughs> that they just don't have these kinds of, they, they just don't have a lot of s- spirituality. Um, and so they don't, they just reject as, invalid um any experience that is not the same as theirs and um yeah i mean it's beautiful well i've been considering um one of those ancestry dna companies Mm -hmm. but i don't like the idea of someone having that information and um (laughs) they can um you know they sell it and store it and i'm like "Mm." yeah but I would really like to know, um, you know, I've been looking at different tribal groups, like am I from the Mandinka tribe in the Gambia? Am I from the Ashanti tribe in Ghana? Am I from the Igbo tribe in Nigeria? I don't know, but it would be lovely. It would be meaningful. <laughs> it would be for to know that. powerful for yeah. me to know. Yeah, yeah. Well, so what is astonishing you today? Um, well, I just heard about a project. So I, I've talked about her before that I um, follow Allie Henney, who is um, a Black Christian. She's ordained. I don't know that she's pastoring. She, hmm. She's um, just doing a lot of um, consciousness raising work, um, which I just think is the the work of, our, of, of this generation. Um, to, to name some truths that have long been silenced and shunned. Um, and she has a blog called The Armchair Theologian. Um, and she really writes a lot about her experiences as a black woman navigating like whiteness um, and particularly whiteness inside. I mean, in the country, like in her, in most of her work to date, she's been sort of giving her commentary on what's happening um, politically in the secular world. Um, 
And so that that's her background, but she doesn't often talk about that. Um, but she is participating in a project that's happening now called you, you, you were covering up your mic. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> she um, is participating right now in a project called Leaving Loud. Have you heard of this? Yes. Um, okay. So it is a, um, a project where um, a lot of prominent Black Christian leaders mm -hmm. who have come up in white evangelical yes. churches mm -hmm. and sort of for a long time, it has very much suited the needs of these churches to have one or two people of color mm -hmm. on their staff um, and as a public face for these institutions so that um, there is this appearance of um, multi-ethnic community and there's an appearance of um, you know unity that transcends the racism in the world. And, and there is the reality that of all people in this country, Black Christians are some pretty loyal, yeah. passionate, and giving Faithful. Christians. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, whatever. And like, obviously, you and I are both very passionate about the idea of having healthy and holy multi-ethnic churches. So a lot of these white evangelical churches want to become multi-ethnic and they, mm -hmm. one of the ways to make that happen is to bring really talented, gifted, passionate, authentic black Christians onto their leadership staff. And so they've, they've done that. Um, the challenge, and we name this a lot, is that you can be um, sort of phenotypically multi-ethnic, but um, uh, genetically, um, monocultural. And so the experience that many of these Black leaders have um, is that they are siloed, they are victims of lots of microaggressions, they they are brought in because we want a Black person on their team, but whenever they share authentically challenges they have in the community, being a person of color, they're told, you know, that they're not faithful, that they're egotistical, that they don't, they're not loving, that they're not bearing one another's burdens, that they're being judgmental, you know, and so um, it becomes many times just a very spiritually abusive experience for Black leaders. And what often happens um, for love of the church and for love of people is, is that Black leaders in these spaces um, burn out and um, they leave. Sometimes they're fired, um, but sometimes they just quit and they just go. And, you know, there's no story. No one ever... Or there's a story that is just like, oh, God is calling you to something new or, oh, whatever. And they leave quietly. And there's this project right now called Leave Loud, where they're inviting um, Black Christian leaders with platforms just to tell the truth about what their experience was inside the white evangelical church, because um, there is no change without truth. And so as long as these stories aren't being told, then the culture of the churches remains entrenched and they'll just begin to do the same thing. Um, and so, so, you know, they're being invited to tell the truth, even though the truth will be disruptive for the churches. And, and, you know, the thinking is, okay, I mean, it's connected to this idea of like this press conference, right? Like, the status quo needs to be disruptive. 
and you know, the, the line is always just be patient, just wait, just give it a little more time. And I think people are, are saying like, we've, we've had, had a lot of time and this is not going to spontaneously happen and it's not going to happen in a vacuum of truth. And so like Ali Henny is the latest um, voice to tell her story on this podcast called Leaving Loud. Um, and honestly, like I, ju- I just found out about it and I just downloaded her um, episode of the podcast yesterday and I haven't even had a time chance to listen to it yet. But I just, um, I know that I want to. Um, I expect that it will be an uncomfortable experience for me. Um, and why wouldn't it be an uncomfortable experience for me? It's definitely an uncomfortable experience for her to tell the story. So I think like a lot of times white people, um, we, we are called to this work. We believe in this work and we come to it, but with really wrong expectations, um, we think that it's going to be, um, that it's going to feel good every second that we're engaged in this work. And I just think it's really important to lift that up. And if you just look at it for half a second, you think like, why would I expect to feel good at looking Mm. at the pain and disorder and destructiveness and, and, and unhealth of this community that I hold so deeply, like that's not going to be pleasant. Just like if you get diagnosed with cancer, you don't go into chemotherapy treatments expecting that to feel mm. good, right? Mm. Like you expect it to heal you <laughs> and to bring you back to life, restored health and long life, but you don't expect the process of healing to feel good. And I just feel like we, as followers of Jesus, I mean, I would say as American Americans, white Americans as well, but that's <laughs> that's not my... <laughs> That's not my sphere of influence. So I would just say like, as white Christians who are really listening to the voice of scripture, the voice of the prophets and the call of the gospel to, um, you know, do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. Like we want, we say like, there's a deep sickness in our, in our, in our nation and in our history, and it has invaded our sacred spaces and we want to get hell healthy and instead of feeling righteous, we want to be righteous. And so let's have the right expectations. That is not going to feel good every second of the time. It's not going to feel miserable every second of the time, but it's not going to feel good every second of the time. And if we walk into it, understanding that and understanding the goal isn't to feel good, the goal is to get well <laughs> and that it won't feel good, but it will be good. Um, that will just help so much. So um, I I just really think it's so, I think it's so generous um, for Allie, Henny and others to share their stories. Um, It's a gift to the whole church, whether it feels like it or not. Um, I'm going to listen. I am probably not going to feel good while I listen to it. And it's going to be a gift um, to hear the truth so that I can be a more faithful and healthier leader in my own community. So Mm. that's what's astonishing. Yeah, this past Sunday, um, I preached uh, from John 13, the um, scene where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and then he gave them a new commandment to love one another. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, I've always encountered that text as a kind of um, uh, sappy, maybe too strong, but just, you know, oh, let's just love one another and everything will be okay. And um, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes this past week to see something new that's been there the whole time, but I'm just seeing it. Um, that washing feet in that day was really messy. Right, so when we wash feet today, we wash feet shielded by modern shoes and socks. Right. They washed right. feet, sandals, traveling dusty roads. So it was a dirty mm -hmm. job. And so to love, to serve can get quite messy to um, combat racism, to combat white supremacy in the church can get quite messy. Uh, I've heard people say, boy, if we could just go back to the early church, everything would just be great. No, no, many of you wouldn't have liked the early church because the early church, one of their primary issues was about ethnicity. Can people of yeah. Jewish descent and Greek descent be in the same church? They wrestled with that. Peter and Paul had a, a, a confrontation because Paul said in response to Peter's prejudice, you are not acting in line with the gospel. It was tense. It was messy. It was not um, uh, this pastel colored <laughs> sappiness in the church. Yeah. I mean, you can say that and I'm like, oh my gosh, could you make it any clearer that you don't read the Bible? I mean, <laughs> not only, not only was it incredibly tense, um, not only is like every letter that almost every letter that Paul is writing is in response to a crisis. So, so they had many of the exact same problems that we had, and it came with a death sentence. Like people literally were part of a church knowing that if they were found out, they and their children would be painfully killed by the authorities. So like, I just like this idea of like, when people say, I want to get back to the early church, I feel like what they really are saying is I want to get back to the church in the 1950s, where you know, we had power and authority and we, it looked a certain way. And, it, you know, I just, I mean, that and the whole idea of like, let's get back to biblical marriage. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> you don't read the Bible. Well, it's three wives for Bible. me. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, right. You don't read the Bible. <laughs> well, and with, um, with the Leave Loud um, movement, one of the things that I would encourage white Christians to understand is that, and I said this on Sunday as well, is that love is not the same as being nice. And yeah. I think some of the problem, some of the challenge for white Christians in this moment that we're in, in this season, is that many equate love with nice. And especially in the Southern US, when we can have a kind of nice that can see injustice, that can see wrongdoing and say mm -hmm. nothing because you are afraid to hurt someone's feelings. In the, in the Southern US, we have a kind of nice that will tell you what you want to hear to your face, but in private say and use kind of language that communicates what I really think. Right. So yeah, I know I mean, how to be nice to people of different ethnicities in public. But when I'm when I'm when I feel safe in my corner or wherever, that's when I'll tell you what I really think. And or, or maybe you're nice in public and in private. But if you are unmoved to stop 
the people you're nice to from being disenfranchised from voting or from being, you know, given a third of the salary of white people or from being murdered in the streets by officer, you know, then then how, why does it matter if you're nice? You're not loving. Like if the person that's nailing to you to the cross says, excuse, excuse me, before they start pounding in the nails, like, is that supposed to make it better? No, I just, oh, and I, I guess like, I'll just jump in here because this is the perfect thing, the perfect segue to what I'm thinking about, which is this book that I'm reading by Cloud and Townsend on boundaries. And and there are problematic elements of it, but the thing that's good is right. I mean, a lot, it's, it's a lot. Like I'm going to teach on it once we're back together, but in a second hour class, but um, like one thing he points out is there is a difference between um, hurting and harming. And a lot of times we are untruthful with people because we don't want to hurt them. And we think if I cause someone pain, that's unloving. And he's saying, mm. no hurting someone is different than harming them. So like one of the examples he gives us is like, if you are, if you are a leader and you have someone on your staff, who's just not doing their job well, but you don't want to tell them the truth about that because you know, that's going to hurt them. So you don't tell them. And then they never load, they, they never learn, they never grow. They end up, you know, like actually you, you are harming them by not giving them the truth, right? And so for a long time, and, and, and the other example he gives that's so perfect is he's like, look, when you go to the dentist, it hurts, <laughs> but it makes you healthy. When you eat sugar, it doesn't hurt, but it harms your teeth, mm. right? So the person who's caring for you and loving your teeth is going to hurt you in order to keep you healthy. The person who is just trying to sell you a candy bar is not going to hurt you, but is going to harm you. That's and I think a lot of people in general just don't understand that love requires truth. And sometimes truth hurts, but it doesn't harm. And telling lies, sometimes it keeps people from hurting, but it harms them. And so like the Leave Loud project, that will hurt people leaving quietly harms them. And so we as leaders have to be willing to say, that's not my job to walk around here all the time and make people feel good. It's my job to love them. And so when I know that I'm gonna hurt someone, I have to think about that. I have to care. Like I have to have compassion towards that, but I can't just refuse to do it out of a like tiny, tiny, small, like, just wrong understanding of what love is. And like, I mean, again, like the center of our face is a freaking cross. So this idea that love will never hurt mm. is not a Christian idea. Like sometimes loving people hurts and that's unavoidable in a fallen world, but loving people should not harm harm. And, you know, and sometimes an action is both hurtful and harmful. So that's terrible. But sometimes an action can feel good and be harmful. That's no good. And sometimes an action can feel good and be loving. That's great. We love that. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. sometimes it can be faithful and loving to say or do something that causes someone pain, but actually is healing and leading to new life and growth and, and change. So um, I think that that idea of Southern niceness is just all 
all about it. Like we just, sometimes we just don't want to hurt people, but that's not, that's just keeping all the systems in place that are causing deep harm again to everyone. Mm -hmm. And some of that harm is very visible and some of that harm is not visible, but is more eternal. Like it's costing people their souls. Wow. Mm. So that's good. Anyway, that's what I'm thinking about. What what are you thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about um, the sheriff's response after the shooting in Atlanta um, that the shooter was having a bad day. Bad day. Uh, he had a bad day. He had a real bad day. He had a this bad day. He had a bad day. day. Well, and I have several takeaways. Uh, number one, it just speaks to the privilege of being seen with sympathetic eyes. Not that, you know, I think we shouldn't see people with sympathetic eyes, through sympathetic eyes, but it should be expanded beyond white people. Let's mm -hmm. see everyone through sympathetic eyes. Um, another takeaway is that there's just a stark contrast um, between the language of law and order, which is often targeted toward black and brown people, right? So in the 80s, when we had um, crack going on, right? Legislators could not wait to be tough on crime. And here we have the sheriff saying, oh, he just had a bad day. Um, and a sheriff who sold racist um, or shilled for racist t-shirts, anti-Asian racist mm -hmm. t-shirts on his personal social media account. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I heard that the shooter's church uh, spoke out against his actions, expressed sadness and disappointment. But what I want to know is that will they talk about racism in general and white supremacy specifically as a theological issue? Will, will they um, talk about these issues? Because my understanding is that this is not something that's part of the um, life or conversation in this congregation. And so now, you know, they can be surprised by um, this shooter who was a member of their congregation. Okay, be surprised. You've been caught off guard, but now what will you do? Will you begin to um, drill down into these issues? Um, well, I mean, they won't because what they said as the community is we've excommunicated him. I he saw has that. no part of us. So, so their way, what they're saying is we have nothing to do with who this person is and how they acted and we're not responsible. And the reality is like, I mean, obviously he's responsible for his actions, but I mean, had he gone out and won a Nobel prize, they wouldn't have said this had nothing to do with us. They would right? have said it's the great discipleship in our church. Correct. Right. I mean, and I, I feel like Jesus said like, you'll know a tree by its fruits, right? So this young man mm. is a fruit of your community. 
And if your response is, well, we're kicking him out, he has nothing to do with us. I mean, you can say that, but then you're going to leave the system that produced him in place. And so like, obviously we don't know what they're going to do, but I mean, I don't feel hopeful by this first response, which is to say like, well, we hate him. So we're done. Like we've, we've denounced our relationship with him. And I I mean, again, like, I mean, what was awkward for me (laughs) was we're right in the middle of a sermon series on forgiveness. And so like you and I had recorded this podcast on Monday and we'd actually been talking about anti-Asian violence and racism in this country. And this was before that happened. Um, And then, and then that shooting happened and I, I'm, I'm teaching about forgiveness right now. And your first response is like, well, do I cancel it? Because let me tell you what I wouldn't do if I were, I would not say, oh, what sermon do I want to preach in response to a mass racially motivated mm-hmm. killing? I'm going to preach about forgiveness. Like I, I wouldn't choose that. And also what? is it saying if you're in the middle of a sermon series on forgiveness and you say in light of current events, I'm going to cancel our, our series. And I'm not going to talk about forgiveness. Like, I mean, either this is a core value of the Christian community or it isn't. And if it is a core value of the Christian community, then we don't get to take a pause after something horrific happens. So, I mean, that was just a really like it's just a hard thing to wrestle with. Cause I really did really wrestle with, Oh, I'm just gonna, I mean, sometimes I change things up. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to change this up, but I just thought, no, I, I can't do that because if, if we can't talk about forgiveness in this week, then there's no point in talking about it all the other weeks. And so then having said that, and and I just, I need to say for my own sake, I said in the context of the sermon, like, it is not up to us to forgive the shooter. In fact, we can't because we are not his victims. Um, like only, only a victim can forgive a perpetrator. Um, so that's not the point of the sermon is to say, now we all need to go forgive this person. Um, but what we do yeah. have to know is that the Lord forgives him, right? Like the Lord we worship forgives this man you know, certainly the second he asks for it. And, you know, we're stuck with Paul who, who caused a lot more than eight people to be Mm. killed, right? Like this is part of our tradition. And so what we want to say is, well, if there's an evildoer, let's just expel him from the community and make it clear that he's no part of us and we're nothing like him. But the Christian tradition is like, no, 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 we belong to one another and whatever is in your brother's heart in, in some ways is in your heart as well until you turn it over and basically through Jesus, get a heart transplant and get the heart of Jesus. Right. And so like, to me, I mean, in a crass way, it's sort of like pottery barn, right? Like you formed this man and then he went off and did this horrific thing. And now you're like, depart from me, you evildoer. Like part of the reason that he had no reverence for human life, had a blood lust and had this like hatred for who he thought these women were and for his own self and his own addiction. Like y'all made that. Mm. And so, 
you know, I don't think you need to go to prison. Like you don't mean, but to sort of say like, now he's no, like we have no longer any spiritual responsibility towards him. I mean, what the heck? Like if, if you're, if somebody in your church commits murder and you say, well, now we won't bear with him in love now, that doesn't mean telling him it's okay, but like, where's he supposed to go? Like what, either we believe in redemption or we don't. And like, we have to be able to believe in both things at the same time. We have to be able to believe in the sanctity of human life and we have to be anti-violence and we have to be anti-racist. And we have to be able to say the part of the great tragedy is that the people who are perpetrating these horrific acts and, and, and propping up these systems are people created in the image of God. These are our brothers and sisters and they are possessed by the ideology of the enemy of all of our souls. And so you can't just say, you know, depart from me. You're not part of me. No, you're part of the body. And the body is really effing sick. Yeah. And you yeah. can't just like, there's no such thing as a spiritual amputation. There's only healing through Jesus mm. or not. Mm. Yeah. Um, one of my takeaways from this whole situation, and, and I've said this about um, the history of black people, but it's also true um, of and for Asian people as well. And I think we, we as in all of us, just need a better understanding of history. Like the shooting in Atlanta is not some isolated right. situation, right? There is a history of anti-Asian racism and violence. The Washington Post in their March 18th um, online issue had a nice outline of, mm -hmm. of anti-Asian racism and violence uh, in the country. And some things I already knew, like the internment mm -hmm. of the Japanese, and some things I didn't know, um, like 1854, the California Supreme Court in the People versus Hall ruled that a person of Asian descent could not testify against a white person in court. I did not know that. Yeah, and I, I think I was reading that same article, and they were just pointing out the interconnectedness of the Thirteenth Amendment and the then systemic racism against Asian people. That basically, this country, this capitalist system, needed like unpaid labor. Yes. And so when you could no longer have black bodies to feed into this machine, you needed some bodies and you couldn't use white bodies. So then you started importing yeah. Asian men yes. to build the intercontinental railroad system mm -hmm. and explicitly excluding Asian women because you wanted their bodies, but you did not want them to become part of this nation, to have children here, to have any mm -hmm. rights. And like, and they were just saying like, this is a whole, I mean, you have to be able to see the interconnectedness between the way that white supremacy saw black bodies and the way that white supremacy saw yes. white bo Asian bodies and the way that like, if you change certain laws and not even that dramatically, like, but if you change certain laws, but you don't challenge the ideology and the culture underneath those laws, then 
like the devil is a trickster and like it just shifts and finds another form to express itself. And you see that in the way that the 13th Amendment allows for slavery in prisons Mm -hmm. and in the way that all of these laws around Asian American rights and immigration were designed so that people would come in and use their bodies, but not have any actual right to participate and live in this country. And you see it in the ways that immigration laws are used today. And that listen, we want, yeah. Oh no. Well, and even though the country used their bodies to mine and build the railroads, at the same time, you had um, white violence against them, saying, "You're taking our jobs. You're taking right. our jobs." And it's what we've done with people from Latin America. And I didn't. And I, I should have been more aware in the 80s, but there were vi- there was violence against uh, Asians in the 80s because white people felt like the Japanese were taking over everything. And I do remember that anxiety, but th- there were people killed um, because of that. Yeah. Well, and I, I just, even the other thing I was reading, I think maybe in that same article, they were just talking about like when you go back and look at all the ceremonial photos of like opening the railroads, like mm-hmm. the railroad was built by Asians. Asians died. I don't even think you can call them Asian Americans because I don't think they had citizenship. But when there's very little historical documentation of that. So like all of the photos, it's just all white people. And when and the mythology of America is like white people did this. We did this amazing thing and built this engineering feat. But like we didn't build it in the same way that we didn't build the White House or the whole country, it was exploitation of unpaid labor of people who were considered like three-fifths of a human. Mm -hmm. And I mean, again, it's just really important to be able to see like the levels of racism that there's prejudice, right? So I, in my heart, hate people who aren't white and think they're less than or whatever. But then there's also just systemic violence, which is like, I, in my heart can think that you know, black people or Asian people are better than white people. If I want to, I can be as loving as the day and as long in my personal relationships, but I am fine with a legal system that gives me advantages because I'm white and disadvantages people who are not white. And I might not have any prejudice in my heart, but I'm still a racist because I'm saying I'm okay with the world giving me advantages and you disadvantages. I like the system. I'm sorry, it's tough for you, but I still want these privileges. Like that's not love. And part of the challenge of dismantling what you just said, which was well put, is sewn into it, the idea of a white Jesus, a white Mm -hmm. God, And when you start to dismantle systemic racism, for some people, you are touching um, the the center of their belief. Because didn't God set it up this way? Isn't and and that was actually taught. This is God has this hierarchy, right? First of all, there's the hierarchy of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Now there's a hierarchy of human. Which way? We just need to clarify. The idea of a hierarchy of a trinity is like the idea of dry water, right? That's like right. That's, that's we're right. saying that's that bananas. sarcastically. Like oh. the whole point of a trinity yes. is there's no hierarchy in it. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. 
but there there is in the minds of many the hierarchy of the trinity and therefore a hierarchy of people of and mm-hmm. i and they're thinking is well i didn't set it up this way this is a god thing and to dismantle that for them is um a spiritual theological issue right but behind it well, it's just pure idolatry it is. And I, I think one thing that's really helpful is, again, if you read the actual Bible, <laughs> you don't just read about the Bible, but you read the actual Bible. It's deeply disturbing because you find this record of the chosen people and like they're terrible people, both individually and corporately. And for a long time, we don't like our minds like that. We can't square that circle. And so we just go like, oh, well, all this part is important. It's not important or it's not it's just, it doesn't, like, there's no connection between people's chosenness and their terrible behavior. So we either go like, oh, their behavior wasn't terrible because they're chosen, or it's not important to think about um, terrible things that people did with their chosenness, like it didn't matter to God in some way, which is insane. If you read the actual Bible, you understand that there is a record of the brokenness and fallenness, not of those guys out there, but us in Mm -hmm, here mm -hmm. and a record of God's steadfast faithfulness to the people, even in their unfaithfulness. So it's not like God is saying like, I'm cool with everything you're doing. God's not cool with it. And God is also committed to redeeming the world, but the world redeeming doesn't happen by putting these people in charge. The world redeeming happens through the incarnation of Jesus. And I would just say like two things that I feel like if more Christians understood this, Mm -hmm. we would be better equipped to understand what's happening around us right now. One is you look at the Hebrew slaves, like walking out of Egypt, spending 40 years in the wilderness, learning how to be free, learning how to be the chosen ones, getting into the promised land, blah, blah, blah. There's a system that God sets up with judges, which stops there being a hierarchical, like hereditary power structure, like all the other nations have that, you know, the people live with it for a while. Like God is their King. There's no human institution of kingship. People live for for a while, but what do they do? They say, give us a King, give us a King. We want to be like the other nations, give us a King. Mm -hmm. So they're given an alternative way of living in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And they're like, we don't want this alternative way of living. We want to live like everybody else, but be the best at it. So eventually God gives them a King. It's a, I'm just going to use the technical theological language. It's a shit show, right? It's terrible (laughs) from the beginning, right? Because the king wants to be king with God's power instead of being king and and letting God be king through him, right? Like that's Mm. the power dynamic all the way through. Like even David, like the very best king who ever was, not a great king, right? And it's really interesting to say like, so they're not allowed to build the temple, right? They're not allowed to build the temple because they're not, they're not going to have this appearance of being this God fearing nation where God is settled in this nation. The God of the heavens is settled in this nation because this nation is salt and light and the chosen people. You're, you're not to have, you are not allowed in God's eyes to have the appearance of it without the reality of it. Right. But finally God relents and lets Solomon build the temple. And we go like, Oh, I guess Solomon was a great dude. Solomon, not a great dude. And there's this deep irony that if you read the Bible about Solomon building the temple. And it's like all there in like deadly, deadly detail, like how beautiful this is and how special it is. And God right there is saying like, this is not the temple I wanted. I didn't want this kind of temple. This isn't what I wanted. I wasn't looking for like a really beautiful temple. You can't build me something beautiful. I created the universe. Like this is not how this works. So, so, but it's all there along with God saying, this is not the temple I desire. I desire a temple of faithful people. 
But beyond that, you don't notice it. But Solomon builds that temple with what? Slave labor. Mm -hmm. Slave labor. So the people who were freed from slavery get settled, get security, get power, desire to become like all the other nations, and then they become enslavers because they turn away from God and God's ways, right? We don't know that part of our history, but it is right there in the Bible because it's mm-hmm. sacred, because we need to know it, because we repeat it. It's not there because God was okay with it. God was not okay with it. And secondly, like I was thinking about this lately because my friend Gail and I did this thing, the small group thing together where we had um, virtual small groups and we were looking at the seven major themes of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and wanting people to be able to see these themes so that when they run across different pieces of scripture and whoever, I mean, anybody can use any piece of scripture to make it say anything, right? And Mm. we're trying to say like, there are these seven themes in scripture. And so if you hear people take a piece of scripture and it runs contrary to one of these themes, like, I just want your ears to prick a little bit. I just want you to be like, but wait, what about liberation, right? Like, what about that? Or or what about intimacy with God? Like, what about, you know, whatever. What about the fact that God is a creator and God said, you know, it is good, it is very good. So like, how does your understanding of preaching this fit with God's declaration that it is good? But whatever, so these seven themes. I was feeling really good about them until I realized that the thing we never talked about, and it's such a theme in Hebrew Bible, and it is not a theme in our self-understanding of ourselves, is the theme of exile, Right. Like a huge part of the story of God's people is exile. And why are the people exiled? The witness of scripture is they are exiled because they were unfaithful to God. Like God looks at them and says, you have broken my covenant. Mm -hmm. I am not going to let you stay in this land and have this appearance of being in covenant with me when you are not in covenant with me. And it is hurts when they go into exile but it is a step towards healing and wholeness in the broken relationship and i just feel like oh gosh hey i would bet that if you pulled 10 people in our churches they would not know that the exile happened Mm, no it happened because we don't preach about it enough right like we preach about liberation we preach about the wilderness we preach about coming into the promised land we preach about david and then it gets to the exile, which primarily shows up in the prophets. And like, we don't preach that part of the story. So people don't know that the exile happened and the exile was as formative an event for the people of God as, as the Exodus, right? And when we preach the Exodus and not the exile, then we teach our people that we are the innocent redeemed part of history And we do not teach ourselves that we too can be unfaithful. Like that just because in the past we've been victims of these systems doesn't mean that in the present or the future, we can't be the victimizers and the one that perpetuate these systems. So that. And if I were preaching the theme of exile, I would begin in Genesis with exile out of the garden. Yeah. And the the problem that we often have when preaching that is that it's seen as an individual exodus. Mm-hmm. Like I did something bad, therefore I have been um, exiled out of the garden. Is that true? Yes, but there is more. It's we, we disobeyed, humanity has disobeyed. Um, and we right. often lose sight of the collective. Well, and and the reality is, I mean, much like we have such a difficult idea, I mean, white people, 
have such a difficult idea understanding and seeing systemic racism. Like we don't see it because we're like, well, I know my heart. Like that's that's the line every time, right? Like you don't know my heart. If you could see my heart, I don't have hate in my heart. I don't see color, right? Like people mm-hmm. are testifying to their personal experience and saying, that's the only thing that matters is my personal experience. But like neither you nor I was in the garden of Eden. Neither you nor I listened to a snake and took a bite of the apple. And yet we were born into a world that was shaped by that turning away from God, right? And so you can say, at my heart, I don't have anything but love for God. And in my heart, I don't want to do anything but obey God. But the reality is you were born into a world where you are taught that up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right. And like, that's the filter through which you meet God. And so there are just ways that you are shaped by this, that, I mean, are you like, is it your fault? No. Is it your reality? Yes. Right. Just because it's not your fault doesn't mean that it's not harmful and doesn't mean that God doesn't isn't interested in changing it. And at some point in your life, you do become responsible for what you refuse to confront or change, I think. So. Yeah, I agree. Again, um, we've been given a Western version of Christianity that really is just about the individual, me, my sin and my salvation. Am I saved? Am I going to heaven? And it's really just about me, me, me. And um, there is a broader, larger story. And even, you know, with the chosen people, there is a thread that runs throughout the Old Testament when it comes to the chosen people of this isn't just about you. This is about how I'm blessing the whole world. This is about how I'm going to um, redeem the whole world from the fall. And you get these stories throughout the Old Testament of people who were born outside of Israel being brought in. Right? Correct. Correct. Um, and, and from the, yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, keep going. I was just saying like from the very beginning of the birth of the chosen people, scripture is so truth filled about like the people do not walk out the other side of the Red Sea and become these, like they weren't rescued because they were virtuous. Like I didn't choose them because they were better than the Egyptians, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So they go to the other side and like they are unfaithful and they are whining and they are violent and they are disobedient. And that like God is using them to rescue all of us from these systems that are killing and stealing and destroying all of us. And I feel like, you know, if, if we were writing a story about ourselves, ask me how I know I've read history books written by Americans about America. When we write a story of ourselves, we highlight all of the good and skip the bad or lie about the bad. And this, one of the ways that I experience scripture as so holy is that no, this is not a history that a people writes of themselves. Like nobody (laughs) keeps a record of every crappy, embarrassing, terrible Mm -hmm. thing that they did, but mm-hmm. but that is exactly what, I mean, what both testaments of scripture are. Like they tell the truth about who God is, which is beautiful, but also the truth about who humans are, which is both human, I mean, which is both beautiful and horrifying and, you know, astonishingly wonderful and like 
like sick to your stomach. I mean, like it's all, it's all there, the gamut of it, which is why I know it's holy because it's not like, it's not PR, like (laughs) it is not PR. So anyway. Well, that does lead us into what we're preaching uh, this week. It is Palm Sunday and you have Jesus, the King riding into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Mm-hmm. What are you preaching about? I don't know yet. <laughs> it's just Monday. <laughs> All I know is that in this, this moment that we're in, it's important for us to, um, just like with the text um, for us last Sunday about washing the disciples' feet and love, it's important for us to um, let the Holy Spirit open our eyes to something fresh and new in the text. Um and I, I don't know what that looks like, what that is this week, um, but I know that in this season, um, God is very active, God is speaking, and I don't know what the Lord wants to say through that text, that story, um, but I know, I'm, I sense it has something to do with um, the kind of um, humility and peace Um, that the kingdom of God is bringing and how disruptive that is, how uh, different that is to our sense of kingdom. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, and you and I've had this conversation a lot, like, sorry, I'm, if if people are hearing things, it's because pandemic preschool is at my house. um, And I, I'm, so there are kids around um, and yes. And there's just lots of Lots of life breaking out um, right now. We no longer have discrete little boxes wherein we do work stuff and then go home to home stuff. But um, I would say you and I have talked about this a lot in the past that I don't know exactly how I'm going to do it, but I'm really committed to always preaching the story of Palm Sunday because um, I think that there are parts of scripture I mean, it's connected to what we were just saying. Like there's stories and scriptures that we immediately are like, oh, I get this. Like, I get why this is here. I get why it's important. I get why it's formative. And there are other parts of scripture that we were like, why is this even here? Like, it doesn't make me feel good. It doesn't make sense. Like what's the significance? And so the temptation is just to ignore those um, and focus on the stuff that really already speaks to us. And that's a huge mistake um, because you know, the Lord is trying to grow us and change us and and open us to the fullness of the revelation of who God is. And so I think, you know, the temptation is always to skip Palm Sunday or to just kind of put it, like make it the opening, like it's cute, make kids walk down the aisle with palms and then like move straight to the passion. And um, I think like the reality that all four gospel writers, um, it's all four, right? It's in John two, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Some version of the entrance. Yeah. Um, All four gospel writers use this story it's just a key part of the revelation of Jesus. And we're foolish if we just go like, well, it doesn't make sense to me. So there's nothing here for me. Right. And so the idea that, that the way Jesus came into Jerusalem is so important that it needed to take up space. Like we need to pay attention to that. And um, so I think like, I believe, and I've been thinking this for the, the longer I do this work, the more the more I agree with myself, which is not always the case. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, I can't believe I used to think that. But the longer I deal with this work, the more I agree that, you know, the donkey 
ought to be one of the key symbols of the faith of Christians. Like people ought Mm. to be able to look at the donkey and immediately know what that's telling us about who Jesus was and who we're calling to be in the same way that we would look at like sort of the communion loaf or, or even the cross, right? Like, and, and this idea that Jesus entered into uh, in weakness and in humility and to serve and was sort of, you know, immediately rejected by the people for not showing up in the ways that the world recognized and celebrated, like that was not the one thing that happened back then. That is always the way that Jesus enters, right? And so we either have the values of Jesus or we have the values of the world. And and we need to be really honest with ourselves about the times that we like de-Jesus our communities to, to grab out for power and wealth and influence because we know that the gospel is inherently attractive, but for people who are not on a spiritual journey, the true gospel is not. Like if you are in love with the world as the way it is, you're not going to be in love with the gospel. Now, if you are, if you are soul sick um, and you have discovered that, you know, like the prodigal son, that getting everything you ever wanted is actually a disaster, then the gospel is very good news and it's very attractive. But I mean, if you haven't gotten to the famine and eating pig pods stage of your social growth, then the only way the gospel is going to be attractive to you is if people make the gospel not look like Jesus. And so I think like the donkey is the symbol of how Jesus refuses to meet our expectations and instead glorifies the Lord. And, um, you know, to, to do the work that I think God is doing in every generation, but particularly in our generation of exercising white supremacy um, from our American congregations, um, which I do think, and it's not really my place to say, but which I do think is a dominant force in all American Christian communities, not just in white Christian communities. I mean, most are in white Christian communities, but um, but if we're going to do that work, we, we have to be donkey people, not warhorse people. Mm. And um, that is, I think, something that we, like a lot of people in the church aren't interested in Palm Sunday. And that is a spiritual diagnosis, right? Like that's a symptom. Well, over the, the years, over the years, um, I've heard lots of people rightly point out in the text um, how the crowd welcomed and cheered Jesus when he entered, but then uh, turned on him and started shouting, uh, crucify him. And the line is something like, you know, look how dumb those people were. How could they do that? And what you're suggesting is that we take a look at ourselves at how we, on the one hand, in our churches, we welcome Jesus. And on the other hand, we reject Jesus. So there are some things we, we want to receive from this king. But when he challenges white supremacy, when he challenges um, our consumerism, when he challenges uh, sexism, we're like, okay, hold up. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're not sure we want this Jesus. Well, and I think maybe even deeper than that, you know, we all assume like, oh, I would have been at the Palm Sunday parade. And I think like, mm. I mean, would you have been? Because, you know, as I, I really like this Borg and Crossan book on the Holy Week, and he points out that like, really this was staged and planned at a time when Jesus was entering Jerusalem from the East and uh, whatever Pontius Pilate was entering from the West. So there's the Roman empire entering from the West gate of the city and the Holy empire 
entering from the east gate of the city and it's this clash of values and i think you know we we believe that there was this big huge crowd of people around jesus and there probably wasn't like mm. it probably was a really ragtag group of poor impoverished powerless people who frankly had nothing to lose in in um, showing up because their lives were so wretched under the Roman Empire anyway that they were just desperate for for revolution as they understood Jesus bringing it. And so, you know, in lots of the stories people are telling, I forget which gospel, but people are telling Jesus's disciples to make those stupid kids and cousins shut up because they don't want the Roman Empire to hear that some do pretending to be the empire the messiah is coming in here and that's going to get all the jews in trouble and that's when jesus says like if you made them quiet the rocks would cry out but i think it's this idea that like the people a not everybody showed up not all of us would show up and b even of the people who did show up they are also in the crowd on good friday screaming crucify him because even if we rightly perceive that the system as it is is not what we want to be a part of that doesn't necessarily mean we want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, right? Like it's not, I mean, we just keep dividing the world into good guys and bad guys and saying like, so, so, you know, it's the bad guy. I mean, like that church, right? Like it's just the bad guy, but the system itself isn't. The reality is like, we are all far from the glory of God. And we don't, we don't see the glory of a peasant riding a donkey into the city. We don't see that as the glory of God, because we're blind. And um, in the church, it's first recognizing what is not of God, but then moving beyond being against that to being for what God is doing, which requires radical self-giving love. And it's risky and vulnerable. And a lot of us just aren't here for that. So yeah. Wow, which just reminds me of those images, those striking images from the book of Revelation, bowls mm -hmm. and trumpets. Well, if I take what you just said, it's because you have this clash of kingdoms. And mm -hmm. in order to do the um, uh, the fulfillment of the, the deep work of uh, bringing about the new creation, uh, the the old creation, <laughs> the current empire has to be overcome and does not go quietly. Correct. And so um, those those um, those symbols make a lot of sense in that light. And I'm reminded of, I think it's in Daniel where uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream of a statue and it's different yep. metals and yep. uh, it represents all of the you know prominent nations of the world. And then the stone comes from the sky representing um, a Messiah who strikes the foot of the uh, this great statue and it topples down. Um, that's, I'm not sure if... Um, Many of us are here for that. It's like, well, Jesus, just, just save me and take me to heaven when I die. Well, uh, yeah, but I, please, we don't want to change don't ever, systems. Right. Like I, I really like indoor plumbing, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> and the reality is like, I mean, that's not really a joke. Like, like, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. we have some expectations of like what we're entitled to as humans mm. and what we're entitled to because we've, received salvation from Jesus. And I think we have, I think sometimes very few spiritual expectations and a lot of temporal 
material expectations. And it should be the opposite. I'm reminded that the Apostle John exiled on an island because of his faith, because of his faith Mm -hmm. in Jesus. He has this vision by the Spirit on the Lord's day. And when he has a vision of the risen Jesus, even this apostle says he fell down like a dead man. It it is terrifying because no matter where we are on this journey, no matter how long we've been on this journey, we still have many attachments to Mm -hmm. the way things are, even Mm -hmm. someone like John. And when we are truly in the presence of the Holy One, that can be exposed in a way that is overwhelming. And I I just think the church just isn't giving a lot of attention to that. Well, and I mean, again, it's a cliche to say this, but that doesn't make it untrue. Like, you know, it's like that Annie Dillard quote about like, you know, we come to church and I mean, either we come in our Sunday best or we come defiantly casual or whatever, but we come with very little expectations that we're going to encounter the holy. Like Mm. that's not like we come wanting to have, I don't know. I mean, so I think the idea is like, let's just be, be every once in a while, let's just stop and notice that like, this is, I mean, if, if what we're doing is true, then then what we're talking casually about is, mm. is mm. almighty God. And, mm. and this is, this is dynamite that we're playing with. And we just, we, we have very little fear of the Lord. Mm. And I think, you know, recovering what right fear of the Lord is, I mean, that's hard for us to figure that out because it doesn't mean being terrified with God and it doesn't, but it, and but that's along with sort of the revelation of Jesus being our friend. Like for a lot of us, that's not a revelation. We're like, well, no, of course, Jesus is my friend. Like, oh my gosh, no, like, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, Listen, so he's got blonde hair and blue eyes, of course. He's, <laughs> he's your friend, yeah. of course. This is, um, we need to stop talking. Like, there's so many more things I want to say. Like, I haven't even talked about, I really wanted to talk about Eva Patel and also the part of this um cloud and townsend book that i see being misused and misappropriated and creeping into the dialogue around anti-racism but next time next time next we will time talk about that um but thank you all for listening if you're still listening you're a champ <laughs> um if you want to find out more about what is going on at yolanda's church which is derida presbyterian church d-e-r-i-t-a presbytery dot org don't wait deride presbyterian.org is that right deride pres deride pres dot org um go there check it out and go to their youtube page and you can um be part of their worship on sunday mornings it drops at like 6 a.m or 3 a.m depending on when yolanda goes to bed and if you want to um binge on great content then go <laughs> Every time I cannot get this right, go to their Podbean website. <laughs> you know, he's he's mouthing the words to me like you could just say it right, like you could just say Podbean every week and save me the distress. But go to the Podbean website and search for a derided press, and you can listen to old websites. And if you would like to find out more about 
um, what's happening at The Grove. And you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org and go to our website. You can sign up for our newsletter, which comes out on Fridays, which is really good and full of information that nobody in the church really reads, but you should. <laughs> People are always coming to me and being like, I didn't know anything about that. And I'm like, I love you so much. And you just told on yourself because it's in the newsletter. Anyway, I love them. We love each other. It's all good. Um, you can also worship with us on Facebook Live. Yolanda, you're ridiculous. Um, you can worship with us on Facebook Live on Sunday mornings. It's really fun. We talk to each other. We comment a lot. Um, we that we premiere that video at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And if you would like to um, hear messages from the Grove, old and new, um, you can go to the Grove Church um, site. You can go to uh, you can go to Spotify. We're on Spotify. We are on Spotify. Next up, we're going to get on MySpace. You guys are everywhere. MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> we're everywhere. We're everywhere. Thanks to the amazing Ryan Rich, who is just a gift from God and, and figures out a lot of that stuff for us. But um, you can go anywhere, anywhere you get your podcasts, you will find us, the Grove Church Podcast and Old Messages. So um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we will talk next week. <laughs>